Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about reconstructive surgery for melanoma and skin cancers with Dr. James Clune. Dr. Clune is an assistant professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So, uh, wow, melanoma and plastic surgery, I think of melanoma as skin cancer. It's correct. It is a skin cancer, but it, the surgical treatment of uh, this type of skin cancer can um, result in some pretty large, what we call defects, holes. And I think it's important to have a plastic surgeon or someone who's versed in reconstructive surgery uh, treat the patient afterwards to make sure that they can look the best they can afterwards. So melanoma is like the really scary skin cancer, right? I mean, everyone thinks, oh, it's just a skin cancer, I guess basal cell carcinomas, squamous cell carcinomas that lots of people have shaved off uh, and stuff. Melanoma is the one that people are really scared of, right? They're like the discolored mole or something like that? That's correct. It is very, um, of the skin cancers, it's the most serious. Fortunately, it's the most rare as well. Um, but treatment uh, has improved over the last even three years uh, to a point where we're hoping to have this managed as more of a chronic disease than what the internet, internet might tell you. Well, it used to be kind of a, a deadly disease uniformly if the melanoma wasn't caught in time, as I recall. It, and it certainly still can be. We have, um, unfortunately, many patients who, who, who don't make it uh, these days. But with our new treatments, we're hoping that, that uh, you know, these advances continue rapidly as they have been in the last few years to really help our patients make this uh, more of a chronic problem than an acute problem. Now, um, last I was up to date in melanoma, which is quite a long time ago, Jim, um, you know, there was a certain kind of staging procedure having to do with the depth of the of the melanoma in the skin. And it seems to me that, you know, a lot of that was dealt with by either dermatologists or or dermatologic surgeons, if that if that's the right word, right? To to resect the or take off the primary lesion and hope that it wasn't too deep. Is that still the case? <clears throat> yes. Usually, what happens is uh, the patient may find a mole on their own, or uh, often a spouse or a partner will find something on their back because they can't see it. They say that looks weird. You should go see somebody about it. The patient puts it off for a while. They eventually end up in the dermatologist's office. The dermatologist will shave it off uh, or punch it out using like a little core needle that kind of punches the, the, the um, mole out. Or uh, sometimes they'll just ellipse it out with a little knife and excise it and put stitches in. They need to get a piece of that tissue to send it to what's called a dermatopathologist. It's a pathologist who looks under the microscope specifically at skin problems. And they'll look at it and... Uh, make a determination as to whether it is a nothing mole versus uh, what could be a, a melanoma. Mm -hmm. And that depth, how deeply that melanoma goes, determines what happens next. Um, sometimes you just need, may need a little bit more taken out, and that would be considered what's called a melanoma in situ 
meaning that it's in the very, very superficial layer of your skin. It hasn't really invaded very deeply. Correct. It hasn't gone in, into the, to the dermis yet, but it's in the very superficial layers of your skin. Or it could be deeper, and we usually do this uh, by measuring how deep it is uh, using millimeters. So, uh, and that will help determine what we do next. How deep the melanoma goes helps us determine how much we need to take out. And at a certain depth, we start to worry that the melanoma may travel through the lymphatics into the lymph nodes, those little bunches of grapes that we have in our armpit and our neck and our, in our groin yeah. uh, that become enlarged when we are sick. Swollen glands-like. Correct, yeah. So we want to, and once we get to a certain depth, we have a concern that that may have traveled to the lymph nodes, and we want to check those lymph nodes. And that's another part of surgery where we actually take some of the lymph nodes out to send those to the laboratory for them to look under the microscope at those lymph nodes to see if there's any melanoma in those lymph nodes. Is that something you do, or is that still another kind of surgeon? No, we can we, can, we do all of them at the same time. So we'll, oh. the dermatologist will take will do the biopsy, then they'll come see us, and we'll make the determination of um, how much skin needs to come out, how many lymph nodes, if any, need to come out, and then we do the reconstruction all at the same time. Wow. Correct. Okay, wow. So, But the biopsy has been done, so you already know how deep it is, right? Usually we know how deep it is based on the biopsy. Okay. And then, then you take over at that point. The plastic surgeon comes in. Yeah, yeah. No, so they'll show up in the office, you know, a couple of weeks after their biopsy when we've had our dermatopathologist really go over it with a fine tooth comb to make sure we have a correct diagnosis. Uh-huh. And then that's where we take over and we have, you know, an hour meeting with the patient uh, before we schedule anything to talk about all the steps that need to be taken. Uh, you know, we need to, we actually need to know which lymph nodes to take out ahead of time because. The patient in their armpit, say, for example, may have 20 lymph nodes. We don't need to take out all of their lymph nodes, which may have been done in the past uh, on the first surgery. We just need to take out the lymph node that drains and cleans that piece of skin where the melanoma was. Well, how do you figure that out? So we get this fancy test called a lymphocytogram. A lymphocytogram? Come on. You made that up. It's basically just a map. Okay. That's what I tell the patients. So you're going to go to radiology department. You don't go to sleep for this or anything like that. Where the melanoma is, they're going to inject a little dye. And then they're going to have you wait in the waiting room for about an hour. Then they're going to take your picture with an x-ray. And then the first lymph node that lights up with that dye in it is the one I need to take out in the operating room. So is the dye radioactive? Yeah. So there's a radioactive injection that occurs at that time. It's called technetium-99. It's a... And uh, we'll actually inject that again the day of your surgery so that I can use a handheld, almost like those little sticks that you use to find water in the cartoons. Really? It's it's called a Geiger counter. Uh And that'll pick up the radioactive isotope. And the noise gets louder, and I get an increased count on my little Geiger counter in the operating room that day. So we use the map. I have that up on a computer screen in the operating room that day of surgery. And then I also use the little handheld Geiger counter to guide me to the lymph node that I need to take out so I don't take out more than what's necessary. So you're just an overgrown geek, really. A little bit. Yeah. So uh, it seemed to me that this this lymph node thing, didn't they used to inject some colored dye and look for the lymph node to change color? That's what was that, is that ever done? Or? So we also use a uh, methylene blue or lymphazerin blue as a dye. We still use that the day of surgery. Uh, the radiologists, when they do their injection, they don't use it. They just use the technetium. Uh-huh. We use the lymphazerin blue and the methylene blue uh, the day of surgery because, at least in the body, when I have, if someone has a melanoma in the arm or the back or the leg, I'll use it. And that will help me visualize when I make the incision to take the lymph nodes out. Not only do I have the Geiger counter, but I also have the lymph node will turn blue from our dye uh, to tell me that's also a lymph node that I should consider taking out. And, uh, you know, in the head and neck, when you have a melanoma of the face or the neck, I don't use the blue dye because 
some of the lymphatic channels are very superficial in your skin. And those dyes are similar to tattoo dye. Oh, wow. And you can leave somebody with a streak in their face uh, as that lymph, lymphoserum blue is traveling to lymph nodes. It can, wow. It can permanently stain it. So I don't use it in head and neck, but anywhere else in the body I will use it. Huh. So that's uh, really cool. So you've got like a double identifier, right? You've got a blue and it's, uh, and it's uh, you know, giving off the Geiger counter noises. Correct. Yeah, I find that if you use the blue dye, uh, you may be listening for your Geiger counter, but there's fat and lymph nodes around. They're kind of don't give you a full 3D picture, but if you see a little blue hue behind some fat, you know to move that out of the way to take that lymph node out. So it's just an additional uh, additional way to, to find what you're looking for carefully. Now, the fact that you're taking out these lymph nodes, whether they turn blue or they're radioactive or not, that doesn't mean that they're involved with cancer, right? That's right. It's just a map, and that's what I tell the patient right from the beginning. I said, this is whether I find five lymph nodes that are blue or two lymph nodes that are blue, it doesn't mean that your melanoma is any worse than, with, than we predicted in the beginning. It's simply a map to tell me where that lymph node, which lymph node drains and cleans that piece of skin. So where the cancer would be if it has spread. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, I mean, is it often in the lymph node or...? Well, it, we typically use percentages based on thousands of patients. So the typical numbers are if the melanoma is 0.8, it's very thin, 0.8 millimeters up to one millimeter. That's like a, almost like a little dot, really. It's almost nothing. But that, if, that's, if that's how deep it is, the chances of it being a lymph node are between 8 and 12%. Oh, that's pretty high. And once we get to one millimeter in depth, that's kind of the gold standard where everyone will have a lymph node biopsy. That gives you about a 20% chance of having uh, melanoma in the lymph node. Now, just because you have melanoma in the lymph node doesn't mean that um, you know, bad things are automatically going to happen. Doesn't sound good. It just tells us we need to watch you more carefully. Typically, huh. we'd get additional imaging, maybe a CAT scan or a PET scan if the melanoma has worked its way into the lymph nodes. And in some cases now, depending on how big the amount of melanoma is in that lymph node, we actually will often start people on uh, immunotherapies, which is a new way of treating melanoma over the last few years. We often will start people on those medications, even if they don't have any evidence of it anywhere else in their body, mm -hmm. only in that lymph node. The evidence is good that we may be able to pre prevent it from uh, becoming worse. Well, let's, let's talk about that in the second half, because I think that's really, really interesting. But what, what I'm thinking about here is that, um, you know, moles, like what many of us think of as moles, uh, seem to raise up out of the skin oftentimes more than a millimeter, right? Uh, uh, coming out three, four millimeters if it's a big mole, uh, you know, vertically, right? So does that mean, I mean, are, first of all, are melanomas likely to be like those usual raised moles? Or are, they, are they more often flat? And if they are like that raised mole, if it's four millimeters up, does that mean it's going to be four millimeters down? I mean, that's pretty scary. So, you know, the melanomas that I see in my clinic, it's kind of a mixed bag. It's patients who have had a lot of sun exposure throughout their life, a lot sure. of sunburns, maybe tanning bed use, a lot of freckles throughout their body, and then one that was flat and well circumscribed or done nice and smooth and round, probably smaller than the size of a pencil eraser. All of a sudden, three months, six months before they met us, started to change. It started a little bit jagged at the edges. Maybe it became a little bit raised. It was bleeding and itching. Then that is a, si a sign <clears throat> Excuse me. that could be a melanoma. Mm. Uh, the other 
group of patients that I see is uh, patients that had you know average amount of sun exposure, even uh, darker pigmented skin, uh, any ethnic background, had a mole since they were born. And then 20, 30 years later, all of a sudden that mole began to change. Mm -hmm. and, those, and those can also be a melanoma. And yes, they can be quite deep. They can be four or five millimeters off the skin. Uh, and, and if the malignant change is, uh, is superficial, that can, they can go deeper into the dermis and they can be quite deep. It's not necessarily deep just because it's sticking out. Not necessarily. Skin. Part of it, you know, only portion of that may have changed. All of it may have changed. Or it could just be what we call an atypical um, mole. mole, and it needs to come off because we see some atypical cells in it, but it wasn't a melanoma. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I know this isn't really uh, your ballywick particularly, but, you know, uh, which people, uh, which patients should be, you know, being scrutinized sort of regularly just because they got a lot of freckles or moles or, you know, you can't, not everybody has a partner you know, I don't ask my wife to like scrutinize every mole, though she often does like bother me with like, what's wrong with that mole? Sorry, Amy. Uh, yeah, sure no, she doesn't can, really sound like that. Yeah, no, our, our friends and family are important, keeping us safe in all aspects of our health. But the, uh, you know, patients with a history of blistering sunburns, multiple blistering sunburns, especially in childhood, use of tanning beds, fair, very fair skin. Uh, you know, these types of patients should be seeing their dermatologist once a year for an annual skin exam. Wow. Um, our dermatology colleagues can probably weigh in even sure. more on that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, one of the biggest predictors I see is family history. If you have a parent or a direct uh, child or, or aunt or uncle, but mostly parents who had melanoma, that's an indicator that you should be checked out as well at least once a year unless something more concerning has been found because there is a strong correlation with family history. And is there any correlation between like having other sun damage like, you know, what they call actinic keratoses or anything like that uh, or other kind of skin cancers in melanoma or is it kind of not necessarily – well, it, not, not, not directly, but because actinic keratosis, basal cell, squamous cell are also a direct result of increased sun exposure over a lifetime, then you would presume that your risk of melanoma is also higher. Okay. Well, we're going to need to take a break for a medical minute, but I guess it's fair to say that you probably don't support the use of tanning beds? No. Okay. Very good. Uh, so with that said, get off your tanning bed and let's take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about reconstructive surgery for melanoma and skin cancers with Dr. James Clune. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. James Clune. We've been discussing skin cancers, in particular melanoma, and uh, James is a plastic surgeon. So uh, thanks so much. This first half, we've talked a lot about sort of what happens, uh, 
you know, screening for melanoma and identification of melanoma and the, the primary management of taking out the melanoma and looking for the uh, potential uh, spread of melanoma. But so far, we haven't talked about plastic surgery. Now, I'm thinking facelifts. I'm thinking about, you know, Botox. Like, what's up? Where's the connection? So plastic surgeons have been involved in melanoma since it's the surgical treatment of melanoma began uh, because the resection site, meaning where we take the melanoma out, can leave a, a large hole. So plastic surgeons have always been involved in, in the removal and the reconstruction. But the melanoma, you said, might, might only be a few millimeters wide, right? So why do you need to take out a bunch of skin? Right. So, yes, you can take the melanoma itself out, but what we're worried about with melanoma, and this is why we do lymph node biopsies and that sort of thing is the the spread of melanoma into the lymphatic channels that are in the fat and below the melanoma. Okay. So we've learned over the years that if we take a certain predetermined uh, normal skin margin around it, uh-huh. then we can help prevent the disease from coming back in that area called so, local recurrence. So how, how wide is that usually? So for the very thin melanoma that I mentioned earlier, the melanoma in situ, the one that hasn't gone deep at all, we just take a half a centimeter margin. Okay, and that's, that's not too big. five millimeters. And then as it gets deeper, we take more and more. So anything between one millimeter in depth or there's some other indicators that we sure. look see on the pathology report that would make us take a little bit more, but it tends to be a one to two centimeter margin. The two centimeter margin is for the deeper melanomas, the one centimeter is for the medium thickness melanomas. So when you say a two centimeter margin, basically you're talking uh, a radius of two centimeters. So it's two centimeters all the way around? No, it's a diameter. Oh, that's from the edge of the biopsy site. So if you have a biopsy site that's the size of a half dollar, and then you take two centimeters all the way around it, uh, so that can end up being something maybe the size of the palm of my hand. Oh, wow. So it can be a a larger resection site. Wow. And that's... That could be on the arm or... Could be anywhere. Yeah, on the face where... Seven centimeters on the face you might take off? It's possible. Wow, I'm not sure I want to see you. Sometimes the melanomas are very large, so they can be, you know, if you have a melanoma the size of a golf ball, then the the resection site's going to be quite large, which is where the plastic surgery comes into play. Yeah, so what do you do? I mean... So we have what's called a flap, where we basically, you know, in the the past, I think... uh, the coverage has been with skin grafts, and mm-hmm. skin grafts are useful in many ways, uh, especially in burn patients and that sort of thing. Sure. But when you cover something with a skin graft, you don't have any thickness to it, so you end up with a very concave surface. You can always tell when somebody's had a skin graft, and you always think, well, I wonder what happened to that poor person. It, right? it, it can be a waxy appearance, yeah. and it can be a, wrinkly a, de- a little bit, a, a little bit wrinkly, and a, a depression. And what people notice when they look at somebody from across the room it's not necessarily a scar, but what they notice is asymmetries. Mm-hmm. So if uh, if you have an asymmetry on your face, that's more noticeable than a scar. Interesting. So the goal, the one of the ways to to prevent asymmetry is to replace like with like. It's a, a saying in plastic surgery. So if you have a if you've taken out something that has skin and uh, you know a couple of inches of fat underneath it, you want to replace it with something that has skin and a couple of inches of fat with it. So we take advantages of parts of the body that have loose skin and rotate those into the parts of the body that we've taken the melanoma out. Say the, on the face, that one of the best places we call donor sites, the place we're going to take our flap from, is, say, the neck. 
uh, especially as our patients get older, they have uh, excess skin in the neck. We'll make a cut down the neck and take the skin and the fat from the neck and rotate it into the hole that we've made on the face. And we try and hide the scars in places that you would probably typically see a scar for a facelift. So right in front of the ear and that little wrinkle that everyone has, we're behind the ear, um, in the wrinkles of the lateral eye, uh, crow's feet, we can hide scars there, the forehead. So we try and hide a nasolabial fold, which is a fold that comes between your nose and the corner of your mouth. Yeah, as the you smile, smile, smile lines. Kind exactly. Of. Mm-hmm. So we try and hide the scars where we take the flap from in those lines so that they're less conspicuous. And again, we're trying to prevent asymmetry. So we want to give the patient a symmetric look. Is the flap still attached to where you got it from, or are you taking? I mean, I'm picturing you've got this thing going from your neck and going around your ear, and it looks kind of my my brain picture of this is not. Yeah, a good so one. there's multiple types of flaps, but um, the most common flap is called a local flap, and that actually still is partially attached to where it came from, but you use geometry to make it so that it is a smooth surface uh, in terms of the cuts that you make. Is it connected underneath? I mean, do you tunnel it? You can it tunnel or? flaps. You can tunnel them and take the skin off the top and tunnel underneath normal skin. There's so many uh, amazing, uh, interesting ways to reconstruct uh, and use flaps that it's a, it's a, it's an art and actually probably the most enjoyable part, part of the job is wow. recreating uh, somebody's face for them after you've done this resection. And do you have this planned ahead of time, or is it kind of like, let's see how it looks and I'll figure it out as I go? I usually go into the operating room with about three, four options, uh, and then it all depends on how it, we take it out, and then we look at it and we say, okay, you know, this is this was my first option, but maybe when I put that there, it's going to distort the corner of the mouth a little bit. I don't want to give them a droopy mouth. Let's go to plan B. Oh, this looks better. And we, and we go go like that. And uh, you've discussed this with the patient ahead of time, what yeah. the various possibilities are? I try and tell them ahead of time, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to use what's called a flap. And I try and tell them where it's going to come from. Uh, I draw out the incision and I show them the scar on a piece of paper and say, you know, this is probably going to look like this. And, uh, you know, the, most of them, you know, they're quite understanding of what you're doing before you go in there, especially around the eyes and the eyelids. Those yeah. are, you know, uh, interesting places to reconstruct and, and they have a pretty good idea what's happening before you go in there. Do you use computer graphics at all to, like, use their picture and alter it? Or no, really? I just do everything by hand and gotcha. hand draw them. Gotcha. And, and what happens to the donor site? Is there a big hole there now that you got to patch up? So that's the good thing. You know, if, it's a, if it's coming from a loose spot, then you can close that spot primarily just with a regular straight incision and then hide that scar in a wrinkle. So you're getting like a neck job at the same time. <clears throat> yeah, but only on one side. <laughs> so that's bad for symmetry. Maybe you should do the whole thing. But fortunately, uh, you know, cancer care has evolved, such as in breast cancer, that if you have uh, breast cancer on one side, you reconstruct the right breast, the insurance will pay for a symmetrizing procedure on the other side. So that's something I've done. If I take a melanoma off the left upper eyelid and I have a, you basically do an eyelid lift to get the melanoma out, well, then you can do it on the right side as well at another time. Wow. Yeah. And uh, what the uh, listeners can't uh, see is that Dr. Kloon has a very handsome beard, and it made me think about uh, what about men's faces uh, where you might be taken off, um, you know, an area that maybe the guy has thick beard growth, uh, you know, even if he shaves, right? And so if you replace that something from the neck and he doesn't have beard on his neck, and now you're going to have this patch of, you know, plain skin. Right. So that, that is something, no, that's something we discussed with the patient as well. And for the most part, we can. it's not so much a matter of not being able to replace a hairy spot with a hairy skin. The problem is when you have 
hair bearing skin in your flap and you want to rotate it to a place that never had hair before, such as if I want to use a piece of skin from the cheek and rotate it onto the nose, you don't want to have to shave your nose. Oh, that would be awful. So that's the uh, that's the, that's the challenge, and so obviously we're not going to do that to somebody. But you know there are ways to depilate, meaning take the hair follicles out of skin. Um, say if you want to reconstruct the ear with a flap from the neck and the neck has hair on it, you can reconstruct the ear with a neck flap and then depilate it or um, you know, use uh, methods to kill the hair follicles so that you don't have hair growth in that area. That's really fascinating. I was, you know, I was thinking the reverse of like having a bald, new bald spot, but I guess then you just don't grow your beard, I guess. Or... Yeah, then it's easier to shave than yeah. Than and, and just say that you don't have a beard. <laughs> <laughs> this is so cool. So, did you know? Did you go into plastic surgery kind of with this in mind that melanoma was something very interesting for you? Or it, it tell us about that. What yeah, was your journey? It wasn't until I, um, I I trained at Yale as for six years as a as a resident at Yale prior to going graduating and going to California. And that starts with uh, that starts with general surgery, right? Don't you have to right. do general so, surgery? So you first? do a portion of general surgery. So these days you do about three years of general surgery and three years of plastic surgery, and that's your training. Okay. So Yale had a unique situation in that Dr. Stephen Arian, 35 years ago, started the Yale Melanoma Unit. Right. And uh, he was a plastic surgeon. He trained me. Another surgeon here, Dr. Deepak Narayan, uh, was also trained by Dr. Arian. So the two of them, Dr. Narayan and Dr. Arian, uh, built this program over the last 35 years. Mm. And I was fortunate enough to be able to train with them to have this kind of unique combination of plastic surgery and uh, and melanoma surgery. But you didn't know that going into I it. I didn't know that going in. That I was just, just kind of fortuitous. Right. I, I worked for a group called Operation Smile that does cleft lip and cleft palate surgery after college, and I knew I wanted to be a plastic surgeon. I enjoyed the reconstructive portion of it, but everything else just kind of fell into place as we went. Wow. And... Uh... So that, what percentage of your life is this melanoma thing? You mentioned that you also do breast reconstruction. <clears throat> I, I, don't, I don't do breast, but I'm, we, we train in it oh, as I plastic see. surgeons. So I, it's a good corollary because a lot of people have been affected by that as well. But I'd say about what I do for surgery is probably about 80% melanoma surgery right now. Um, I treat about 350 melanoma patients per year. Wow. Um, the other part of my practice is I do a lot of uh, reconstruction for other surgeons that ha- have, uh, have taken large tumors out uh, for sarcoma or uh, malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumors, tumors of the nerves. Mm-hmm. We'll go in and we can help reconstruct the nerves to help them give them hand function uh, to make things move again that were um, uh, not working because the tumor was taken out. And is that usually done at the time of the primary surgery or it's, it's afterwards? It depends on the cancer type. Uh-huh. You know, if it's, a, if it's a cancer that we're worried, very concerned that it's not all out at the time of the administration. You don't want to We'll wait a week right? or so until we're positive that it's all taken out and then we'll go back and reconstruct. Uh-huh. But sometimes you're involved with the planning from the get-go. If usually, yeah, I'm I'm always involved with the planning from the get-go. They'll they'll see the patient and say, okay, this this gentleman has a large sarcoma on the leg. We're gonna make and the sarcomas can be very big. They can be the size of a football. Wow. So then we know that we're gonna have to do what's called a free flap, where we literally take skin, fat, muscle, and the artery that perfuses it and gives it the blood supply. We'll take it from one part of the body, say the back. We'll transfer it to the leg and use a microscope and do what's called microsurgery to reattach the artery from the back to the to an artery in the leg, and so that the blood flow from the leg will be giving the blood flow to that flap to no the leg. No kidding! Yeah. Wow. So those are larger reconstructions that 
that take a lot of planning. And you plan, plan in advance. That's so interesting. And so do you do any cosmetic surgery? I mean, I realize all of it's a little cosmetic, but I mean, any primary cosmetic surgery? Very rarely. Uh-huh. Yeah, occasionally a, a, a spouse of one of my patients will be in the room with us. They're all healed up from their surgery, and they'll ask about their eyelids or something, and maybe uh, we'll do something like that. But really, we're, we're so busy with all of the melanomas that we're taking – melanoma patients that we're taking care of. I don't have time for any cosmetic surgery. Yeah, you know, we started off uh, with a little snarky joke on my, you know, part about facelifts and stuff. But and there's nothing wrong with cosmetic surgery. Obviously, it makes a lot of people happy. Oh, it pays and the it, bills for a lot of people. And it pays the bills. But um, you know, I do think that uh, when many Americans uh, think of plastic surgery. That's what it sounds like. That's cosmetic surgery. Right. And really, so much of plastics is not that at all, right? Yeah, no, there's a lot of shows out there, Nip Tuck and those types of things that, that uh, talk about cosmetic surgery. But there's a huge uh, proportion of plastic surgeons that are everyday reconstructive surgeons taking care of the community. And that, and that is the majority of what our training is in is reconstructive surgery. And we often will apply that to cosmetic surgery or vice versa, the cosmetic surgery we will apply to our reconstructions. So. You know, and I think that we don't often think about, I think we don't think, (laughs) we often don't think about, you know, in terms of uh, suffering of cancer, the disfiguring surgery would be terrible to have to live with, right? It's a constant reminder, I imagine. And plus, we're used to our face looking a certain way, even our arms. Right. And uh, for plastic surgeons, it is what we do is our goal is to restore form and function. So the way you look, we try and restore that. And then we want to restore the function that you had before. So uh, you know, with the face, it's important to restore a functional smile, you know, drinking water. You don't want it having out, come dripping out the corner of your mouth because the muscles of your mouth were resected with a, with a cancer operation. And as our advances in immunotherapy and treatments are getting better, patients, we expect them to live for a very, very long time after their surgery. So we want to give them, uh, you know, we want them to look in the mirror and not be reminded of their cancer every day. And there have been a lot of laws passed to support those efforts. Many states have passed laws uh, mandating that a plastic surgeon uh, be available to treat breast cancer reconstruction patients if if you have a mastectomy, that there should be a plastic surgeon at least available if you choose to have reconstruction. Reconstruction is not required, but, you know, patients should Should at least have it available. And and something I believe that should be available for any cancer operation, sarcoma, melanoma, breast cancer, whatever it is, because our medications are so much better these days that we can expect a very large proportion of our patients to do very, very well. It's wonderful. And, And Jim, since it's early spring now. What do you want to say about people who are about to like go to their tanning beds and go into the sun all summer? Yeah, don't don't try and get your base tan to prevent the burn. It it doesn't help. The sun damage is cumulative cumulative over a lifetime. Just go out and get one of those sun shirts. I I I slather my family in sunblock all the time. I don't like sunblock either. But I get one of those sun shirts with a 50 SPF on it. I don't have to put the sunblock back on again all day. Good to go. It's really, really been great, those sun shirts. Dr. James Clune is an assistant professor of plastic and reconstructive surgery at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. And past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.